Today we meet a father who has put his kids to bed and is hoping to catch a few moments of peace before he has to crawl into bed himself. Little does he know he's about to meet the Grim Reaper. And then we travel to Irvine, California to meet a man who hears a knock at his front door. Little does he know on the other side of that door is one of the most bizarre stories in true crime history. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host Jason Garmenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. We got a ton of stuff to cover. You guys heard the intro. First off, let's give a shout out to one of our newest Patreon supporters walking into Dead Rabbit Command right now. Get those hands ready to clap for Bill. Woo, yeah, come on in, Bill. He's walking around. He's doing a little strut. Bill, you're going to be our captain, our pilot this episode. If you guys can't support the Patreon, that's fine too. Just help spread the word about this show. That really, really helps out a lot. I'm seeing a lot of the podcasts that started the same year I started back in 2018 quitting. They're just packing it up and they're shutting down the podcast. And that is not a fate that I want to befall Dead Rabbit Radio. Let's help this show grow. Spread the word and get the message out. Dead Rabbit Radio is the place for your daily paranormal news. Bill, let's go ahead and toss you the keys to the Jason Jalopy. We're leaving behind Dead Rabbit Command. We're driving out to Yonkers, New York. The year is 1974. We're in Yonkers, New York. And it's late at night. This man, he's sitting at home with his family. He doesn't give his full name. This story is by his initials, A.L. So we're going to call him Al. Al is just sitting at home. It's the best time, right? He's alone. His family's there, but technically he's alone. His kids are asleep, and his wife's in the bathroom. And he's like, oh, yeah, now it's Al's time to shine. And he just sits back in his recliner and turns the television to some Archie Bunker. Why I oughta? He's sitting back, he's watching television, he's just enjoying some time to himself, and then all of a sudden, Al sees something out of the corner of his eye. He turns and he looks, and standing there in his living room is the Grim Reaper. It's a tall, black hooded figure, its face nothing but a luminous white skull. It's standing there holding a scythe. And it slowly starts to glide backwards. Odd, right? (laughs) Jason, the angel of death is in his living room and you're like, but shouldn't you walk forward? It's little details like this that really kind of sell the story. And Al is terrified, obviously, but he can't take his eyes off of this thing. And he watches this figure glide all the way back until it gets to the bathroom door. And then it disappears. Al jumps up out of the chair and runs over to the bathroom door. You obviously can put two and two together. My wife's in the bathroom. The Grim Reaper just went into the bathroom. He begins banging on the door, and he doesn't hear anything on the other side. He doesn't hear, I'm pooping, Al, I'm pooping. Nothing. That's normally what she says the whole time she's going to the bathroom. Al's like, she's not saying her catchphrase, oh no. He kicks down the bathroom door, and there he finds his wife laying next to an empty bottle of pills. And he goes, apparently they lived next door to her sister, and her sister was a nurse. He runs next door, bangs on the door, they all come out, 
and help him get his wife to the hospital. They're able to stabilize her and then save her life. This story, like I said, I got it from ThinkAboutItDocs.com. They got it from Strange Magazine, which is one of the big paranormal magazines out there, especially back in the early age of conspiracy paranormal thought. I don't know if they're still around right now. I know Mark Chorvinsky, the guy who created it, has passed away. But Strange Magazine. This was a story that he personally wrote about at his time at Strange Magazine. It's really, really interesting. We've talked a lot about guardian angels as well on this show, and it's kind of the same thing. Why do some people have guardian angels and some people don't? Or does everyone have guardian angels? But sometimes it's their quote-unquote time to go. Why did he see the Grim Reaper? And other people have, and other people have walked in on the same situation, a loved one taking their life, and they're moments too late. My only hypothesis is this. He didn't see the Grim Reaper. He didn't see the cartoonish version of what we see as death. The black hooded man with the skull and the scythe. What Al did, for whatever reason, it could have been Al alone. It could have been his wife. It could have been the connection they have. Al sensed something was wrong. Al knew something had happened, but he didn't know how to express it. He got that funny feeling we sometimes get when people we love are in trouble. And he created almost a tulpa of what would actually get him up out of the chair. His brain got a signal that something was wrong. And to decipher that signal, it created the most known representation of death. But that still doesn't answer the question, why Al? Why Al was able to save his wife? Was it the connection that they had? I imagine the connection between a mother and her children is just as strong, if not stronger, between a married couple, right? Why Al? It's interesting, and I think this is part of where the scientific community fails us as paranormal researchers, is we should know that. We should investigate that. We should find out why... Because as much as I love paranormal research, it definitely has its own limitations. Because paranormal researcher could read this and go, spooky. Or, wow, the angel of death really appeared. And we kind of leave it at that. And even if we did want to study this phenomenon scientifically, do we have the laboratory space? Do we have the techniques? Do we have the scientific rigor and the right techniques to figure it out? But the scientific community just dismisses all of this stuff out of hand. Right? They're like, and of course, it was just lucky that the guy got up. There was no angel of death. He didn't pick up any sort of signal from his wife. He just got up and banged on the door, and his wife wasn't saying her catchphrase, so he kicked it open. I, I think there's a reason why some people see these things, these premonitions, and are able to act on them. When most people, when they have loved ones die, I know this isn't the most cheery beginning of an episode, but... They don't get these signals. Why him? And I think, scientifically, I would like to know why, because it could actually help people. If we could figure out why some people could do this, if we could figure out for everyone to tap into these signals. But a very interesting story, one that leaves a lot of unanswered questions. On the paranormal realm, it's definitely possible that the angel of death, the Grim Reaper showed up to take this woman's soul. Because in the world of the paranormal, that is something that can happen. But I think there's something deeper to this story. I do. But it happened back in 1974. Uh, who knows who A.L. was? The man who wrote about it has passed on himself. And the opportunity to research this any further is gone. 
But fascinating story. He did. I would that would be super depressing, dude. If your wife tried killing herself while you were in the next room, that would suck. That's definitely putting a tamper on your evening. But they did save her, and hopefully, she realized that wasn't the right path out. Bill, let's go ahead and toss you the keys of the car. <laughs> That's so depressing. I didn't expect it to get that depressing. And this next story is whew, this next story is weird. I don't know if it's depressing, but it might get there. Bill, let's go ahead and toss you the keys of the carpenter copter. We're leaving behind Yonkers, New York. We're headed all the way out to Irvine, California. It's the early days of the year 2020. It's a very, very recent story. And there's a 40-year-old man sitting in a police station. His name is Chang Zhang. He's an Uber driver who won the lottery in life. Not, not the literal lottery. He married a millionaire, though. His wife was a millionaire, and he just had to drive Uber, and they can make ends meet. She would do, like, some hobby jobs, right? She would sell produce at local markets and stuff like that. But really, she had a bunch of money tied up in investments. He he won the life lottery for dudes. But, but, <laughs> he's at a police station at the beginning of the story, so something's went wrong. His wife, Amber Ayes, 34 years old, Chang and Amber lived together with Melissa Fu, their 12-year-old daughter. So, you know, it's a pretty good life, right? You got your little family. You got your millions of dollars in the bank. You're just kind of passing the time. But obviously things have taken a turn for the worse because Chang Zhang is currently sitting in this police department in Irving, California. And he's been talking to the police a lot over the past couple of months. And this time, the police have actually brought in the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Chang is sitting there and he's getting hooked up to this polygraph machine and he's meeting this FBI agent who's coming in. The police officers are kind of standing around the table. And the FBI agent sits down, a specialist in behavioral analysis. FBI agent sitting there looking at Chang. And the FBI agent goes, I know you've told this story several times before, but I'd like you to tell it to me. And Chang lets out a deep sigh and says, you're not going to believe me. But this is what happened. It's November 22nd, 2019, and we're in the city of Irvine, California. It's 4.30 in the afternoon. And we're at a little apartment on Michelson and University. Now, Melissa was Chang's stepdaughter, and she was a 12-year-old girl, and they all lived together in this beautiful neighborhood in Irvine, California. Chang was an Uber driver. Amber was a millionaire who just kind of did stuff for fun on the side. And, and Amber was out of town. She'd actually recently driven out to Nevada to load up her car full of produce that she was going to bring to California to sell at a local market. Chang is at home with Melissa on this afternoon when all of a sudden, knock on the front door. Chang gets up and he walks to the front door, and when he opens the door, he sees standing in front of him a man and a woman he's never seen before. Now, that's not unusual, right? <laughs> Strangers are allowed to come to your door. Maybe they're salespeople, maybe they're religious ministers, maybe they're lost and need to use your phone. But before Chang can even go, hey, I don't know you guys, the woman reaches out towards him. And sprays him with something in the face. Chang falls to the ground and blacks out. Hours later, Chang wakes up in his apartment. 
He looks around, and the first thing he notices is the blood. The carpet is stained with blood. There's a bloody handprint in the kitchen. Melissa is gone. Chang looks at the clock, and it's been hours. This is when he realized he's been out for hours. Amber should have been home by now. She's not there. And as he's sitting in this empty apartment with bloodied carpet and a blood stain on the wall of a handprint, he doesn't know what to do. What would you do, right? Call the police? But before he can call the police, he finds a note. The FBI agent's looking at Chang in the interrogation room, and Chang's like, I know you don't believe this story, I know you don't believe this story, but... That's what happened. I woke up and I found this note. And the FBI agent goes, what was on the note? And he goes, well, it was written in Chinese. It was written in in Chinese. It's handwritten. And it told me that Amber and Melissa were going to be gone for a few days. And they would come back. But only, only if I didn't call the police. It said, if you call the police, you will never see them again. And Chang goes, and the note told me to clean up the crime scene. I know, basically, what I did makes me look like the perpetrator, but the note told me to. The note told me to get rid of all the evidence, but I didn't do it. I can can see that look on your face right now, FBI, man. I didn't do it. Over the next week, Chang followed the instructions. It said... Just clean up all the evidence and don't let anyone know what's going on and Amber and Melissa will come back home. So he cut out the bloody piece of carpet, threw it away, replaced it, painted over the bloody handprint, went to his daughter's school and said, oh yeah, you know, sorry, Melissa's really sick. She can't come to school this week. Posed as his wife on WeChat, WeChat is basically the Chinese equivalent of Facebook, was messaging family members under her account, acting like she was still in the house. He even found his wife's Ford Explorer that she had driven out with all of the, to go get the produce in Nevada. He found that. The article said he found it in her normal spot, so I don't know where that was, but he was able to track down her car, drove it away, And then took the produce to the local market and sold the produce. He basically acted as his wife for a week. He keeps getting notes slid under his door. Saying, you're doing great, Chang. You are doing great. And you sold those apples for a profit. Keep doing what you're doing. And they will return to you. But it's been more than a week at this point. He's starting to get nervous. But he keeps getting these notes saying they're just going to be gone for a little bit longer. Keep doing all of these things. They'll be home soon enough. And then eventually he gets a note saying, okay, so you need to leave town for two days. He drives to Vegas. He has a relative in Vegas, hangs out there. He's playing He's playing with all the produce money. He's like, I'm a millionaire myself now. He's in Vegas for two days. He comes back. There's a final note waiting for him. It says, clean the apartment again, and they will be home in a few days. Now, Melissa and Amber went missing on November 22nd. It's December 2nd by now. And Chang is sitting in his apartment. And he's like, this is, <laughs> this is not working out. I don't know what is going on. But 
Melissa and Amber aren't back. And you have to think Chang's thinking this whole time, no one's going to believe this. Nobody's going to believe this story. I just dispose of a bunch of evidence. My family went missing. But I'm innocent. The, the cops have to believe me. I'm totally innocent. So Chang eventually goes to the police and says, Guys, you're not, you're not going to believe this story, but my wife and my daughter have gone missing, and I cleaned up all the evidence because I kept getting these notes. And you can just imagine the police officers, when he's telling this story, they're like, Dude, what in the world? This is going to be a slam dunk case. Like, this guy obviously did it. But he does report his family missing. And the police are like, okay, well, let's interrogate you for a while. Let's see if we can make this guy crack. 40 hours of interviews with Ching. Stuck to a story the entire time. Police officers are like, this dude totally did this. He got rid of all the evidence. He poses his wife on WeChat. He's talking to people, trying to like buy time. This is killer 101 type stuff. They put him under surveillance. They go, this is their theory. This is what they're thinking. He's having an affair. His wife has millions of dollars. He's going to kill her, life insurance, kill her, will, whatever. He must be having an affair with something, right? So they put this dude under surveillance. 24-hour, around-the-clock surveillance for 44 days. And the police officers who... They have the police officers, like, physically investigating him. You have the phys- police officers going through all the forensic stuff. You have everyone trying to figure this out. But the police officers who are on the stakeout, who are following this guy around, about maybe two weeks into the stakeout, they're like, this dude might be innocent. Because this dude is so boring. <laughs> this dude, he sits at home all day long. And occasionally he gets out and like walks around the neighborhood and goes back and sits at home. He's not calling up a mistress. He's not meeting anyone. He doesn't have any gambling debts. Nothing. For 44 days, they kept this dude under surveillance. And eventually the captain's like, okay, you guys are getting paid a lot of money to watch a dude sit in his house and watch game shows. He, this isn't working. If he did this, because now it's people are starting to doubt that Chang did this. And Chang goes, listen, yes, I did cut out the bloody piece of carpet and I did paint over the handprint, but this is where I threw away the bloody carpet. Like I threw it away on this date in this garbage can so they're able to track it down. I think by the time they got it, you know, obviously, (laughs) there's a bunch of banana peels on it. And he showed them in the kitchen. He goes, right here, this is where I painted over the bloody handprint. And the cops are like, if he hadn't shown them that, they wouldn't have known there was a bloody handprint under there. The cops are starting to think this guy might be innocent. But th- that's impossible. That's impossible. So they bring in the FBI. Let's bring in one of those FBI analysts we always see on those cool television shows. So they do. They bring in an FBI analyst. And this person is talking to Chang. And Chang's like, listen, I didn't do it. I know it sounds absolutely insane, but I didn't do it. And the FBI officer who's hearing this story is listening to Chang tell this for like the hundredth time and taking notes and stuff like that. And then when the FBI and the police are talking later that day after the FBI interview and the FBI agent who specializes in catching people lying, the FBI agent tells the police, listen, either this guy is the best actor in the world or he's telling the truth. Like I... I've interviewed this guy for a while now. He is not cracking. He is told... I read your reports. He has told me the exact same story he told you guys. He might be telling the truth. 
And the police are like, well, let's go. Really, the biggest twist of this whole story is how it starts. The police go, you're telling me that someone can knock on your door, spray you with mist, and then you pass out, you conveniently pass out for a couple hours and you wake up and your family's gone? Like that, even if he, even if everything else in the story is true, the beginning's fake. It has to be fake. It's impossible. And the FBI agent goes, that's actually the most believable part of the story. That's Floethane. The cops are like, what in the world? <laughs> what in the world is Floethane? The FBI agent says there is a chemical agent called Floethane that if you spray it on someone, they immediately pass out for a couple hours. With that, that's 100% totally true. And the FBI agent says that detail shows that whoever pulled off this kidnapping, it's a very sophisticated kidnapping ring. So the detail that is the most sci-fi-ish was actually the one that was the most believable. Him following the notes, right? Cleaning up the crime scene, a normal person would be like, no, I'm not gonna get rid of, I'm not gonna get rid of all your evidence. That's the stuff that really made them go, that's just what like people like Chris Watts does, right? They try to get rid of the evidence. But the spray you missed until you pass out, that's sci-fi stuff. And the FBI is like, no, that's actually a thing. Kidnapping groups do use that. The story happened in 2019. Here we are in May of 2022. Amber and Melissa are still missing. And Chang is completely ruled out as a suspect. They honestly believe he had nothing to do with this. The law enforcement, they basically stopped investigating him. They said, yeah, what he did was super, super suspect, getting rid of all the evidence. But he showed us where he got rid of the evidence. Like, once he came to us, he was very, very forthcoming. And Floethane is a thing. It does work in the way that he described it. But they have no idea who took Amber and Melissa. They were never seen again. Now, you would think, listen, Amber and Chang are both citizens of China. They have deep family roots in China. So first they thought maybe Amber took Melissa, took the daughter, and went to China. Or even just disappeared somewhere within the United States. But none of her accounts have been touched since that day. Melissa used to call her grandma like once or twice a week. Grandma has not heard from Melissa since that day. November 22nd, 2019. No bank accounts or no contact has ever been done. So you think even if they did go to China, she would still be accessing her cash. She's not. No one is. The money's just sitting there. And then when the police were investigating all this and Chang was like, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. The police go, well, we have something to actually tell you, Chang. Your wife wasn't a millionaire. He's like, what? Yeah, she is. She's a millionaire. She has all this money investments and the police go, no, we have to investigate that stuff too because we're checking to see if her accounts are being used. There's barely any money in them. She was lying. Didn't you think it was a little weird that a millionaire was driving to Nevada to buy produce to sell the local market? She made it up. So what police suspect is that Amber and the daughter were kidnapped for one of two reasons. One, because she told everyone she had a ton of money. That she was kidnapped. And the goal was for a ransom to be paid. But if there's no money to pay the ransom. Then it's all just for nothing. Amber and Melissa were kidnapped. To ask for ransom. But she wasn't a millionaire. Or. 
she was running some sort of Ponzi scheme. She was running some sort of scam, right? Because she put on airs like she had a lot of money. She's selling produce to the local market. So they said she might have scammed someone. She might have told someone that she had a bunch of money and they would invest in something. And then she took that money and they didn't like that and came after her. It could have been that she swindled somebody. Who knows? But with the FBI agent saying with the flow of thing is real, they go, this was a sophisticated kidnapping operation. This was not some dudes just being like, hey, that looks like a rich lady. Let's carjack her. This was planned. But who knows? To this day, for the past, what, three years now, no one has heard or seen Amber and Melissa. Where are they now? Are they still alive? What struggle happened in that house that left the blood there? Whose blood was it? Did Melissa fight back? Did this 12-year-old girl fight back against this adult male and female duo? She drew blood before they dragged her out of the house? Or was it Melissa's blood? What type of confrontation would have taken place for her to bleed out. Who left the bloody handprint? When did they take Amber? How did they take Amber? Her car was parked in the normal location that it's parked, not in the driveway. It was kind of vague about that, but was she getting out of her car when she got sprayed in the face with a mist and fell asleep instantly? Only to wake up in a strange location in the dark. terrifying story. You do want to think that if the time ever comes for someone to come after you, you'll at least be able to fight. Even if they have a knife, even if they have a gun, you can go down swinging. And even the police officers thought that was the case. That there's no way you could ever answer the door and then be rendered unconscious instantly. But apparently there is a drug out there that will do that. That's terrifying. People coming into your house and you fighting back against them, even if you lose, even if you die, you stood there and fought them. But to think the next time there's a knock at your door, you could open it up. And the next thing you know, you're packed in a trunk of a car headed towards your oblivion. The story of Chang, Melissa, and Amber isn't just an interesting true crime tale. It's a constant reminder that not only do we need to be not only do we have to be afraid of the boogeymen we know, but we have to be afraid of the boogeymen we don't know. Who would have thought this even existed? But it does. How many victims have fallen prey to this mist? We'll never know. We can only hope that we are not its next victims. How do you defend yourself against a weapon that is so simple, yet so unbelievable? Seasoned law enforcement officers don't even believe it exists. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. TikTok is at deadrabbitradio. Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. 